Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey everyone, and uh, welcome to this coronavirus edition of Endurance Innovation. Uh, we have joining us today Tara Posnikoff, the Toronto sports nutritionist that we had on fairly early in our history, and uh, an episode that we'll link to because it's a really great chat that we had with her where she laid a lot of the foundational groundwork for how she thinks about sport nutrition and uh for my own two cents, I certainly agree with uh, everything that she posits. So we're happy to welcome her back from her own home quarantine. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. Happy to uh, be joining you via podcast and not face to face. That's right. Yep. Uh, Andrew can't join us today because we had a little bit of a scheduling snafu. Uh, this uh, whole quarantine business has uh, really thrown scheduling into a bit of a tizzy. I have both of my boys at home, of course, since cl- schools and daycares are closed. So anything that used to be part of the regular working day is now um, partially a working day and partially childcare day. So here we are. Well, we're uh, we're in unique times, and we're we're lucky that we have these uh, technology um, modalities to help us through it as best as possible. For sure, yeah, this would have been much much harder fifty years ago, and you know, you maybe would have been able to talk to your friends on the phone, uh, and now you can do FaceTime and email and all social media and all these other things to at least feel a little bit connected. Exactly. So uh, along those lines, if you do hear noises uh, of little feet stomping or sad babies crying, that's uh, dogs barking or dogs barking. (laughs) That is now a part of life for us all the time. So uh, in light of uh, in light of what's going on in the world, really in the whole world now, we've changed the questions that we had for Tara. And so we'll start with something that's a little bit more topical and uh, controversial, actually, because you'll hear all sorts of opinions on uh, social media and even on mainstream media. But uh, the first thing I would like Tara to talk about is what role does nutrition play in your immune function? Because, of course, with the uh, the coronavirus, as scary as it is, most infective cases are said to be mild. Now, what mild means is still uh, a kind of a question for debate. And uh, But regardless, uh, a healthy and well-functioning immune system is certainly going to help with any kind of infection. And in fact, you know, the, the more difficult cases that people have had around the world are generally in folks who have had some sort of underlying conditions and maybe immune systems that were not functioning at their peak. So Tara, what can we do from a nutrition standpoint to optimize the functioning of our immune systems? Yeah, um, well, that's a that's a good question. And as you mentioned, it is somewhat controversial. But if we stick to the basics, and we stick to some some broad strokes, I think we can generally all agree that you know, on some level, you are what you eat and the foods you put in your body will give you the the building blocks for your, your cells and your muscles and your joints and, um, you know, your immune system and help everything keep functioning right. So right. the foods that we do eat definitely have a, a big impact. Um, so having said that, I mean, the, the simplest thing is keep eating your vegetables. Uh, I know we're in a toilet paper shortage uh, at the grocery stores, <laughs> but... Uh, for the most part, we should still have uh, lots of fresh fruits and vegetables or even the frozen ones. And 
Uh, the reason we want to focus on those is you're getting a lot of your vitamins and minerals from the, your vegetables and fruits, um, as well as all the immune boosting bioflavonoids, phytochemicals, antioxidants. And while these might not go so far as to keep you immune from the disease uh, or the virus that's floating around out there, it's going to help strengthen your your body and your immune system to do um to keep it functioning at its best, whatever that means, uh, and fight off, you know, what you can and what you can't. Yeah, that's really great advice. So I have a question. Uh, you mentioned vitamins, minerals, and bioflavonoids. Now, we've all heard of supplements that contain these chemicals. Uh, are supplements, so in multivitamins, for example, or or uh, vegetable powders, for instance, like greens powders, are they as good as the original source, like fresh, fresh or frozen vegetables? Yeah, I think it's it's important to still go with food first uh, because supplements are just that. They're there to supplement and augment. And while certain ones do seem to have therapeutic purposes, um, sure, you know, you want to start with the food. Uh, but having said that, you know, to, to not totally um, sidetrack your question, uh, if people do have vitamin C lying around, vitamin C is great at supporting the immune system, zinc, possibly turmeric, vitamin D, vitamin D, absolutely. Uh, quercetin, omega three, even, um, it doesn't mean that you have to rush out and supplement with this, but if you've got some lying around, those are some of the, the typical go-tos, uh, people would think about when they get sick to help, help them through, uh, a cold or mild infection. So if you've got some lying around, then it couldn't hurt to take them. Okay. Uh, you probably don't need to, to megadose, and it might even be harmful to, to megadose. We know, um, you know, megadosing with some antioxidants during training will stunt your uh, performance gains. Uh, I know that's not exactly what we're looking for at this time. Yeah, on my side, I mean, uh, so Tara, Tara does considerably more research in this topic than I do. But uh, for my own two cents, the the position paper, the last position paper I've seen on this, and I wish I could remember from whom, but it was uh, a trustworthy source, you'll have to take my word for it, uh, was uh, was supporting efficacy of vitamin D supplementation, probably more than all the others. Some vitamin C, if I remember correctly, if you are already uh, suffering some symptoms, um, but that the evidence for that was fairly slim. It was there, but it was slim. And then not too much for anything else. But this was, you know, look, this is a position paper which does carry some weight, but uh, it's certainly not necessarily the end-all be-all. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to, uh, well, I haven't seen that that uh, position paper, but it would be interesting to read it. I'll dig it up to read it. Yeah, and post it. Um, but to keep in mind that everybody's needs are, are unique. So somebody might have problems absorbing vitamin D, so their big need mm -hmm. might be extra vitamin D, D supplementation. And keep in mind, right, we're still in the winter here in, in Canada, um, and we're not getting much sunlight, if any, and it's probably not at the right strength to even allow our bodies to naturally produce it from the sunlight. Uh, well, you know what, we're almost at the vernal equinox, that's, right? That's so true. It's, we, we are in March now. I forget that. <laughs> <laughs> it feels cold. I was out there with the boys on the bike this morning and I wanted to, you know, I was freezing and the, they were complaining about cold feet because it was quite cold, but it was bright and sunny. And I, I would say that right now, you know, you're getting as much sunlight as you would in late to mid 
um, actually maybe like super late uh, September, early October. Yeah, so and normal- it's, it's not full on sunlight, but you do get some. Yeah. And normally I would say, you know, increased supplementation um, through October through May uh, in North America, uh, well in, in Canada, uh, Northern latitudes. So, um, you know, we're still in that, but yeah, you're right. We're starting to get more sunlight if we're spending time outside, uh, since that seems to be the only thing that might still be open, uh, you know, (laughs) you need to be aware that you, you might be getting some additional exposure, which is fantastic. Uh, the, the main point I was trying to make is that everybody's needs are a little bit different. So somebody might have, Um, you know, I know we touched upon this back in the first episode, just a little bit about getting to know your genetics. Well, even if you don't know your genetics, everybody just has a different ability to absorb, uh, or utilize or, um, produce the enzymes to help with the absorption of all these vitamins and minerals. Um, so somebody, rather than saying you all have to go out and supplement with, you know, these five different vitamins or minerals, some people will have a unique uh, predisposition to needing more of certain ones. So, uh, that's why I always say food first and then consider supplementation where, where necessary. Sounds good. Definitely staying hydrated, uh, can be helpful in terms of, um, promoting a healthy immune system. You're helping to eliminate waste from the body. You're helping to transport these nutrients. You're keeping good membranes on the outside, which is your primary defense. So if you're if you're not hydrated, you're more likely to get you know mm-hmm. dry skin. Dry skin can lead to cracking, which can lead to ways for viruses, bacteria, any pathogen really to infiltrate uh, your body. So um, that's another thing to consider when we're looking at adding things to the body. That's an excellent point too, because one, <laughs> the only symptom I've so far experienced is crazy dry hands because of the, you know, the much increased use of uh, things like hand sanitizer, which dries your hands like crazy. And even just hand washing with soap, that's maybe a little bit rougher. Uh, I notice my hands, usually my hands are a little bit dry in the winter, but come this time of year, they're, they're pretty good, but now they're, they're still cracking because I'm just being extra careful to keep them clean. So that's an extra good Mm -hmm. point. Yeah. And then a couple other things to consider are, uh, reducing sugar intake, reducing or avoiding alcohol, uh, some known immune suppressants, Hmm. um, that we might tend to want to indulge in at times of stress or, or crisis. Yeah. (laughs) So keep that in mind. (laughs) That might be easier said than done when you're stuck at home, especially if you're stuck at home with young children (laughs) after a little while, (laughs) you know, those, those, those cortisol levels do go up. Absolutely. But I did feel a need to at least mention it. <laughs> oh, of course. No, look, we're, we're always outlining, you know, look, as coaches and your nutritionist, we're always, we're always talking about best case scenario. So, you know, if everything, this is, this is ideally what you try and accomplish. Exactly. Yeah. Do you want to talk about, you mentioned this very briefly when you were talking about vitamin absorption, but do you want to expand a little bit more on the role of genetics in uh, nutrition? And by that, I mean, uh, with the increased understanding of the way that our genes influence our health in the big picture, do we have a better understanding of how we can use genetic information that we can now get about ourselves through any number of tests to customize the nutrition that we use, that we take on board as athletes? Yeah, um, I think, you know, we, we can look at it as another tool in the toolbox. Okay. 
So if somebody has done a genetic profile uh, or tests or any number of companies, uh, we can use it as a way to sort of guide recommendations and, and guide some of our what we're looking to, to ingest. Will it make a difference on in training nutrition? You know, I don't think it's going to tell you, well, it, it, you know, exactly what product to take or anything like that. It's not that specific. But what I alluded to with the immune boosting is certain gene SNPs, so single nucleotide polymorphisms, will identify people who are more at risk for possibly being deficient in certain vitamins and minerals such as B12, D, calcium, iron, vitamins A. There's a few of them in there. Not all of them are identified yet, but uh, it can make Okay. You know, targeting your recommendations or your focus a little bit easier. So rather than having such broad strokes like eat all your vegetables, all your fruits, you know, eat a healthy diet, we can say you might need to focus a little bit more on, uh, say, vitamin D intake, or maybe that would justify the supplementation. Oh, interesting. Uh, so it, it can make those broad generalizations a little bit more specific and help people in that way. Another big one, actually, that can have a factor or an impact on performance uh, and training is caffeine. Okay. So they've identified the one, uh, well, there's a couple uh, SNPs there that have an impact on how you process caffeine. So either you're a slow metabolizer or you're a fast metabolizer. And the research seems fairly conclusive that uh, slow metabolizers um, are not going to have the same performance enhancement that fast metabolizers would. They might even have a performance detriment. Oh, interesting. So those people should not consume caffeine during training and racing, um, as well as risk for other um, you know, potential like cardiovascular disease or things like that. So those people who are slow digesters would want to probably keep their caffeine intake in and around 200 milligrams a day, whereas the fast metabolizers um, are probably safe around 400 milligrams per day uh, and would find uh, a performance benefit from taking caffeine during uh, racing. Okay. Interesting. So there is some value, but it might not be, you know, it might not be something that dramatically changes the way that you eat as an athlete. Right. It's sort of that upper, say, 1% of performance. Um, and certainly, you know, if you have a questions about whether you can process lactose uh, or should mm, be avoiding okay. milk, that's a, you know, mostly a genetic factor. So ha having that knowledge can then maybe steer you away from your double latte every day to possibly using an alternative milk. If you've you know had a hard time switching, if that's the case, for example, it can give you the proof to make those changes. Um, and, and research has shown, you know, when armed with all the information, you tend to make a more informed decision or it's easier to make that choice. Right. I guess the way that I would see it would be that you're not you have a little bit less uncertainty in your life. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there, 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 I, I, you know, I do think there's some value in it. Is it maybe revolutionizing the way everybody should eat? Probably not. But for those interested to, you know, get to understand exactly what's going on, or maybe even for those who have struggled or for those who have tried everything and still can't figure it out, it's, it's one more thing to, um, one more tool in the toolbox and cool. probably worth noting that it might actually be even more relevant to males at this time than females, uh, just because most 
studies are actually being done on males um, and the data may or may not transfer over. Transfer over to females, you mean? To, to the female population, sorry. Okay. <laughs> right. It's always useful, I find, to understand the value that you're getting out of a training intervention or uh, you know, a nutrition intervention or a piece of kit that you're gonna you're gonna buy. Sometimes those things are not quantifiable and that's you know, you you feel like it might make a difference and so you go for it and hopefully it makes a difference. But if we can get that little bit of certainty or maybe not even certainty, but a little bit of greater understanding of the magnitude of the impact, I find that that's always helpful. Mm -hmm. Okay. So uh, we had all sorts of plans to talk about race day nutrition and carb loading because, you know, the uh, the spring races were just around the corner for us, but uh, now there are no <laughs> races around the corner for, <laughs> unless you're racing on uh, on Zwift and, uh, or something similar where you're doing it virtually or you're racing yourself uh in a time trial of just one, that also can work. So the talk about race day nutrition is a little bit less relevant at this point. So we're gonna switch gears a little bit and talk about alternatives to the traditional sport nutrition. So when we talk about, when, when I say traditional sport nutrition, I mean things that you would use during training and racing, uh, specifically gels, chews, or sport drinks. And I ask this question because uh, I work with a lot of folks who don't like the traditional stuff. It, does, it either upsets their stomach and they haven't been able to find something that works for them, or they just prefer to consume more natural foods and they just do not want to put so much processed, high glycemic, which is the point, ingredients into their bodies. Yeah. So there's there's lots of alternatives out there. Um, what I will say is that what is nice about those conventional commercial products is they are made to measure, you know what you're getting. And it does make utilization um, fairly easy and straightforward, especially in long course situations um, or races where you're maybe not 100%, well, you're focused on what you're doing. Uh, but as we know, when you get fatigued, it makes it a little bit harder to um, make major decisions and stay on top of math and all these things. <laughs> Oh, for sure. Yeah, we all go a little bit brain dead by the end of the by the yeah. end of any race. I would say that it's even harder in short course because if you're working super hard, I find that I'm I go completely completely <laughs> stupid in in hard short hard events, and whereas in long events, even though I'm tired, I can usually I usually have enough blood flow to the brain to to do a little bit of basic arithmetic. But okay. I take your point. <laughs> Fair enough. But you know, having said that, there are let's talk about some alternate alternatives, and then we can talk about how to. Um, implement them into the, your training and, and potentially racing. So, you know, the, the first I'm going to ask you to lay the groundwork, Tara, and I apologize for interrupting, but uh, just let's go over the the bare essentials of sport nutrition in terms of, uh, you know, macronutrients and micronutrients and well, water, yeah. obviously, uh, so that we can evaluate all of your alternatives that you're offering against those, you know, those basic needs. Okay, so primarily for endurance activities and whether you're doing, uh, well, maybe not a five Okay, but whether you're doing a sprint triathlon, you know, a half marathon, a marathon, Ironman, et cetera, you need carbohydrates, you need water, and you need sodium. Right. Uh, and this is all going to help keep you going at an intensity that you would like. Uh, because after approximately 90 minutes, we are out of, say, stored carbohydrate, um, and we need to keep that 
exogenous or outside source of carbohydrate flowing so we can keep going at our desired pace or intensity. Right. So when we're looking for alternatives, we're looking for things that are going to match those that have, you know, we're going to stay on top of water. So there's really no alternative there to water. We want to continue to ingest fluid. Um, What the fluid looks like can vary. Uh, We want to make sure we're still meeting our sodium needs. And that, you know, is a, is a, also um, up for debate, well, not up for debate, but it's it'll vary from race to race, from person to person, um, and carbohydrates, which also vary. So if we're looking at foods or su- uh, uh, substitutes containing carbohydrates, we're looking for those simple carbohydrates. Uh, we're looking for things like dates or honey, maple syrup, bananas, bread, potatoes. These are all very simple forms of carbohydrate that are fairly easy, have a higher glycemic index and are easy to digest. Right. Okay. Um, what about, we've talked about this a little bit last time we spoke and also uh, when Steph Gaskell was on the show, uh, what about types of sugars in the foods that you're eating? Is that something that we need to be paying attention to? Mm-hmm. Well, certain definitely certain people uh, don't absorb uh, or digest handle uh, fructose as well as others. And the, you know, the, the gist of, I think what Steph was saying was that the more you're training and the longer you're going athletes, endurance athletes have a predisposition to, you know, being able to handle less and less as we go. Uh, so if you already have a condition where you can't handle fructose very well, when you're six hours into your Ironman, your ability to break it down will be even, um, lower. And that's just because we're getting more blood diverted from the gut to the muscles to continue our um, forward motion. Right. So uh, when we're looking at dates and we're looking at maple syrup, uh, you know, they're fairly low in fructose. Um, Same with bread, provided it's not made with high fructose corn syrup, which, you know, most traditional breads probably aren't. But if you're getting into some wacky processed stuff, then maybe. You know, potatoes are still mostly glucose. So we're still, we're looking for glucose. A little bit of fructose isn't a bad thing because some of us will be able to absorb uh, some amounts of it. And that allows for those multiple um, channels to help with further absorption of glucose if you're trying, or further absorption of sugars to um, hit those maximum numbers. Um, Whether we need to hit those maximum numbers is questionable. Yes. Uh, but you know, with those, none, none of, you're not sitting down and having high fructose corn syrup or agave nectar. Actually, that would be one thing to input there. As I said, honey, maple syrup. And most people then would say, well, what about agave? Agave would have a higher amount of fructose. So for those people with fructose absorption issues, um, that would be something to potentially avoid or, or minimize. Right. Um, and there's also, a consideration for folks who are quite sensitive to the FODMAP category of foods, and this is what, what Steph was really talking about. Um, and so fructose yes. is definitely one of them, and it's probably the most common sugar that is uh, like simple sugar. Obviously, it's a monosaccharide that, that upsets the tummies of the world. But there are other considerations. So for instance, dates uh, are high in certain oligosaccharides that are that are issues too. So yep. the I think the key takeaway is experimentation. Absolutely. And, you know, even if you are following a a low FODMAP diet, you might find that you're perfectly fine on dates, but you're not good on apples, as an example. 
um, or applesauce for that matter. So within that is all the the individuality. So absolutely experimentation here and, you know, moderation. <laughs> totally. I was just going to say the same thing. Yeah. In my experience, I have a, I worked with a woman who had some serious symptoms and with a, a pre-run low FODMAP uh, approach, which is what we've kind of settled on. Her symptoms are mostly gone, which is really exciting for us both. Um, but one important thing to consider is dosage. So at low dosages, even things that are, you know, te technically high in FODMAP, if you don't need a lot of them, you may be okay. Uh, and as Tara said, it could be, you know, some some people could be fine with with certain oligosaccharides or polyols, but not fine with, you know, the monosaccharides like fructose. So uh, there is a lot of, of individual variability for sure. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, you know, you mentioned dates, and I think those fall outside the FODMAP diet, whereas figs fall inside. So not all dried fruit, as an example, if you're going that way, um, is created equal in that sense. So that individuality. I just looked it up. Dates are high. Huh. It's I'm not I'm not seeing it on this one, but of on the um the the Monash list, they are high in oligosaccharides, date palm fruit. Yeah. Okay. So there's lots of lists. So there's that this is this is the prime example. I think the fact that, you know, Terry's <laughs> looking at one list and I'm looking at a different list is a prime example of the fact that there is no real amazing agreement in this uh in this sector and there is a lot of inter-individual difference. And so it's a, it's always a size science experiment of one. This is one of the favorite phrases of one of the, a different athlete that I coach. So if you do have digestive issues, especially during runs, because runs tend to be the, 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 the most uh, egregious of the sports, um, experimentation is key. Absolutely. And, um, you know, worth noting that if you are going so far as to make your own food, uh, or even, you know, some alternatives, they're still sort of engineered, but people feel that they're more natural, like, you know, granola bars versus cliff bars, because um, I find some people are trying to stay away from all engineered sports food and work their way back into uh, grocery store food. But a granola bar is, you know, no different really than, uh, say, a cliff bar. <laughs> but you might be finding things like those sweeteners, um, sorbitol, mannitol, xylitol, all those artificial sweeteners that one, I don't think serve a purpose in sports nutrition because they're not giving nope. you any calories. Furthermore, they're known to cause some digestive difficulties. And then thirdly, they do fall into that um, polyols of um, the FODMAP. Yeah, they're the P. So, you know, if making your own food, great. Like if you're going to mix some oats with maybe a little bit of uh, peanut butter and maybe some chocolate chips, um, then you can go that way, um, into making your own food. And it, you know, the application varies from person to person. Uh, one, there's the time measurement, uh, to getting your own homemade science done, right. Yep. Two, there's transportation. This might work much better on a bike than running. Yep. Uh, where weight is an issue and carrying things is is a little bit more cumbersome as well as, you know, you're bouncing up and down. So digestion falls into play. Uh, so I think it's important to recognize that nutritionists or coaches are going to give guidelines and then individuals are going to have to adapt them to uh, their own needs. And as you said, create your own your exp science experiment of one. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> Yeah, that's our, our good mutual friend, Sean Croon's expression. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of generalities and there's a lot of um, 
that we can draw on. But at the end of the day, each athlete's different, each stressor is different, each environment might be slightly different, yielding a different physiological response to that athlete. And it does take some trial and error to work out. And over time, your taste buds might change, your digestion will definitely change, your tolerance to different things will change. So it's sort of an evolution as well. Yeah, no, I I agree. I think so. I want to make a couple of points. Well, a point and a question. The first point uh, is that one of the things that came up in in our chat with Steph, which I thought was really interesting and new to me, was that what jogged my memory is the fact you're saying that over time, our taste buds and our uh, ability to digest things will change. And I, I think that's totally true. I've experienced it myself. But what Steph was talking about in that episode, which again, we'll link to was that your tolerance changes within the the exercise bout. So when you're starting off, when there's ample blood flow to the gut, you can digest a lot more. And then as you fatigue or as, let's say, the temperature goes up and there's more uh, more blood is used for cooling, let's say, than digestion, or as the intensity goes up or as time uh, goes up, as the duration of the, of the bout gets longer, uh, typically the athlete's ability to digest degrades so even if you were we didn't really talk too much about this in this episode but even if you were targeting let's say 80 to 90 grams of carbohydrates which is close to the upper ceiling uh, at the beginning of a workout and you could digest that just fine uh, at the end of a really long bout that's most likely not going to be the case so it's something that uh, we've talked before about this on the episode on the podcast but it's something that needs to be practiced and it's important to have the appreciation for the fact that your ceiling, your carbohydrate ceiling changes throughout the workout. And one thing you brought up, Tara, that I want to interrogate a little bit, when you said you can make your own, let's say, um, oatmeal bars using oatmeal and uh, peanut butter and uh, chocolate chips, where are you on ingesting fat during exercise? Because, uh, you know, fat metabolism definitely does happen uh at almost all exercise intensities until we get north of threshold. Uh, so fat is definitely a useful energy source. But what about you know exogenous fat that you take in when you are exercising? Is that actually being converted into fuel, or is that um, a metabol, or or is that food that is not so useful during exercise? You know, we we don't want to focus on and like taking in fat during exercise as a sole uh, form of, of energy. Uh, it's just too complex. It's going to take too long to digest and with less oxygen available, as you said, you know, it's not our primary fuel source. Having said that small amounts, uh, don't seem to be harmful to athletes and some small amounts might actually help squash any or some GI distress. So having a small amounts of fat, um, shouldn't impair performance. Now, most of us aren't doing um, all out time trials in our races. <laughs> uh, you know, with the exception of the very short races, let's say a five kilometer run uh, or race where we're not taking in anything other than maybe a couple splashes of water to keep our mouth wet anyways. So it, it's not something that we usually assign a number or a value to, whereas we normally talk in you know, 50 to 75 grams of carbohydrates per hour. But if you're making your own food, then there's things in, those, in 
natural food that you're not getting in engineered sports products. You're getting those, you know, trace bioflavonoids, you're getting some enzymes, you're getting some, uh, a little bit of fat, a little bit of fiber that might actually help with prolonged digestion as opposed to, Mm. um, you know, just hitting your gut with a whole bunch of sugar for hours on end. It, It goes back to some athletes might be able to tolerate it and others might not. So are you saying that the value in eating real food may be in the fact that it digests a little bit slower? Because if we are you know, operating well sub-maximally, let's say for a long course race, that we have, we can assume that we have the blood resources available for digestion and that slower digestion may be easier on the gut for some people? Um, I don't think I was saying that's that exactly. Uh, More that it just, for though it might help settle some GI distress uh, because the Hmm. receptors won't be overloaded with just sugar. Um, okay. And your uh, ability for food to exit the stomach depends on a number of factors, volume, uh, concentration, uh, or pH, etc. So having a little bit of, of real food for those for some people might be helpful for others, it might not be. So it's not so much that we're looking to slow down digestion, we're just looking to sort of attenuate it or, or moderate the content and decrease any uh, irritation. Understood. So again, we've said this before, and we'll probably say it a couple more times before the show is out. Uh, it's important to tailor your nutrition to your own individual physiology and your own uh, specific race demands. So that's why experimentation is critically important because you are you don't know just by sitting in your chair or even doing, let's say, a, a two-hour bike ride if your race is going to be 12 hours or 14 hours. You don't know what it's going to feel like in, uh, in that, you know, seventh, eighth hour of training to eat your gel or to eat your bar, to eat your boiled salted potato. It's something that you have to experiment with to know for sure. Definitely. Um, and I think, you know, worth worth noting there is we're still trying to keep things lower fat, lower fiber. I'm not because <laughs> um, I know the next questions coming in from people are going to be, OK, so let's go eat some trail mix or I'm going to yeah. fuel up on a whole handful of almonds. Well, that's now taking like a couple grams of fat to a lot more fat. <laughs> right. And that def- that will probably have a negative impact on digestion in the long term. For sure. Yeah. Just because as Tara mentioned, it does take far more work for your system to metabolize fat than it does for carbohydrates. Yeah. The caveat might be those those trail racers, like the ultra endurance where yeah, you're not 24 working. hour racing. Yeah. Yeah. You're, <laughs> you're definitely working, but you're not working in your upper threshold or approaching threshold. Uh, for long periods of time. Yeah, you're well below what we would call like lower threshold or aerobic yeah. threshold. Like you're well yeah. below that even. So that's really that's when you're you're you've got other concerns. Your your concern is not, you know, in the moment availability of oxygenated blood to your working muscles and your gut and your brain and your skin to cool yourself, you're probably limited by other things. So that at that point, yes, eating foods that are easier on the stomach might be the priority. Yeah. The one thing we didn't touch upon with all this natural food talk is if you are making your own, chances are, unless you're you're making, I don't know, a ball of 
pretzel paste or something. <laughs> You're not get, most of these foods are going to be fairly low in sodium. So yes. <laughs> we need to make sure that we're adding some uh, some salt back into that. Heck, maybe you can make a nice little pretzel ball as a uh, homemade food ball or something. Mm, pretzel balls. <laughs> so I have, a ch- I have a challenge for you listeners. You guys may- go home. Next time you do a long workout, make a pretzel ball and take a photo and send it to us. And we will we'll put you up on the Instagram as uh, as the, the pretzel ball pioneers. <laughs> yeah, like let's put some pretzels in the food processor with some, <laughs> uh, with some oats and maybe a banana and mash that together. <laughs> Let's see what they come up with. Oh, yum. Okay. Well, now that we have so much time, especially for those of you who don't, who, who may not have kids and you're stuck at home, start experimenting with your food processors. Yeah, that's that's a great you know segue into just say like start focusing on if you've got more time now because you don't have a pool to go to. That's right. Maybe you can divert some of that time to cooking and you know meal planning and meal prep. Uh, which we tend to put on the back burner when our training schedules get crazy and our work schedules get crazy with everybody working from home, more time to cook. That's true. Um, Okay. So that was a really uh, good chat about uh, alternatives to engineered sport nutrition. Let's talk about a question that Andrew had. And as I mentioned before, he, we had a, a schedule mishap, which was my fault. So Andrew was not able to make this call, but he sent in a question that he wanted to ask Tara. And so he says uh, he, that he's doing a little bit of research into becoming vegetarian and his concerns are more environmental rather than ethical, um, which is, you know, we all have our own reasons for the nutrition choices that we make. So what he wants Tara to talk about is what are the implications and the impacts of switching from an omnivore diet to a vegetarian diet? Okay. Well, he took the words sort of right out of my mouth when I was going to say that the first thing is, you know, considerations. If you're cutting something out of your diet, what are you taking away from it? And then if conversely, what are you putting in to balance that out? And what's the impact? Okay. So I think anybody making a dietary change of any kind needs to um, sit down and understand what that change might result in. Not good, not bad, just what's what's no longer there if anything, and what are you replacing it with? So when we talk about switching from a omnivore diet to a diet minimizing or lacking any animal protein, I'm not sure where Andrew is going to fall on the egg dairy spectrum of vegetarian. Sure. Um, so, you know, our the main things that come to mind uh, specifically are that might be reduced or changed would be protein. Uh, iron, B12, and possibly fat. Okay. So um, I'm sure there's, you know, others, and that would depend on what exactly uh, you're keeping and uh, changing. But um, those are the the you know four four things that I think are important to to look at, um, as well as you know when you're making dietary changes, are there still is there still going to be enough variety for you as a uh, individual, are you going to look at your meal plan now that has, uh, let's say, beans four times a week, <laughs> lentils twice a week, and chickpeas once a week, um, and get a little bit bored of this when you normally would have rotated through chicken, fish, beef, pork, etc. <laughs> sure. Um, so that's that's a consideration. Um, now you're if if you're reducing your animal intake and switching to 
um, plant-based sources of protein, beans, lentils, uh, chickpeas, tofu, um, and then non-plant if he's staying in vegetarian of some dairy or egg, you know, you're changing the amounts of fiber you're getting. And this might normally be a good thing, right? More fiber, yay. Mm -hmm. But can your digestive tract handle the increased fiber? Oh, interesting. Uh, so maybe you want to do this slowly uh, or over a couple of weeks so your body has a chance to start stockpiling the enzymes that are going to be responsible for digesting this new protein source that has a little bit more fiber. That's something that I never would have thought of is because you're absolutely right now that you talk about it. It is, or it can be a very drastic change depending on where he's starting and where he wants to finish. Exactly. Um, so, you know, any change, probably we, we like to do things all or nothing. That's sort of the athlete <laughs> <laughs> mindset. Um, and ready, I'm, set, go. <laughs> ready, set, go. Good. I'm no longer, you know, eating meat. I'm eating only vegetables. Uh, but th that has implications. So, you know, as I'm sure I said in the last podcast, it's sort of one of my the main things that I preach is like, let's make change slowly. Um, so that your body has a chance to adapt <laughs> and your brain, but most, you know, sure. in part your, your body. So that's one thing to consider is what's the impact of, of these changes. And then what are the sort, where your, your food source is going to now come from? Um, so identifying uh, those main sources of, you know, we talked about protein or iron, if you're cutting out a lot of uh, animal meat and it didn't have to be the red meat because you're still getting more, concentrated amounts of protein in animal sources, albeit it might be harder to absorb um, or utilize in some capacity. Um, and then fats is another area that not a lot of people talk about when they're going switching from um, animal to mm -hmm. plant-based. So are you still getting, you know, you're d definitely decreasing your saturated fat load, but with that, you might also be decreasing your calories. So we need to increase our possibly increase our intake of um, fats to still meet that caloric need or match it, I should say. Um, so adding those nuts and seeds, uh, almonds, walnuts, Brazil nuts, um, great source of zinc, by the way, to help uh, with the immune system. <laughs> so making sure or avocados as an example, or, or coconut oil. So making sure we're still getting um, enough calories as well as enough of, you know, that third macronutrient fat, which sometimes gets uh, overlooked in the switch. Okay. So then if uh, let's assume, so he said vegetarian, but just to make this conversation a little bit more interesting, let's say if he said vegan, I'm going to put words in his mouth. I have no idea what Andrew's really planning, but let's say he wants to go from a om typical omnivore diet to a vegan diet. Uh, what are the, you know, you mentioned the, you know, B12, protein, fat, and iron, what sort of foods would you be looking at to make sure that you're getting those key macro and micros? Okay. So the, the first one to consider is that you're not going to be getting significant or any source of B12. Yes. Uh, so that is probably something you'd want to consider supplementing with. Um, so liquid, high absorbable form of B12, you know, off the bat would be we just got to take this now. <laughs> and then so fat, if we're taking out our animal proteins, those all have levels of saturated fat. Uh, and it's not so much that we're looking to replace the saturated fat with more saturated fat, but we have the opportunity to replace that saturated fat with other sources of fat like omega-3s or uh, monounsaturated 
polyunsaturated fats um, like avocados or into our nuts and seeds, some of which I already elaborated on. So um, pumpkin seeds, sunflower seeds, those are all good sources of healthy fat that also come with some vitamin E, um, some magnesium and um, all other um, nutrients that, that those sources would include. Okay. What about protein? So, I mean, just to give us a, a quick recap of how much protein you feel people need, and I know you and I are on the same page, um, and how do you get it if you're not eating an, any source of animal? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it varies person to person, size to size, um, activity level to activity level, but if we... Well, for act, for very active endurance athletes, because that's the, that's the, you know, the, the audience of this podcast, yeah. and you can, you can, you can normalize it to weight, yeah, right, we per get, kilo we get... or... I was getting there, Michael. <laughs> all right, all right. Um, you know, the, the the literature would say like 1.2 grams per kilo up to probably, and I'll switch units to like one gram per pound, uh, or I guess one point, what was that, two grams per kilo. Two. <laughs> um, yeah. So that's a fairly broad range. So, um, but, uh, so what, Andrew, 75 kilos? 70 kilos? Yeah, sure. 75 to 80. 75 <laughs> so, to 80, I would so think. Let's let's say 80 for easy math. Okay. Sorry, Andrew, if I'm if I'm over overstating it. So if we're looking at like one uh gram per kilo, there's 80, 80 grams. Uh if we're looking at like 1.2 as an athlete, let's round up and call that a hundred for yep. nice easy math. Um are, we want to look at our major sources first. So we're looking at a cup of lentils, black beans, chickpeas as examples. We'll all be in that 15 to 18 gram per cup range. So um, right off the bat, you know, if you're, we're eating one chicken breast, which is probably in about 40, 45 grams. Uh, and now you're switching to one cup of black beans, you're getting 20 grams less. Okay. So the quantity of food might need to increase. So let's go through the sources. We've talked about the beans and lentils. Uh, you can have minimally processed uh, soy, so edamame, plain tofu, tempeh. Those are you know sort of acceptable forms of uh, protein coming from soy that haven't been super processed. I know we said vegan, but if he's sticking with vegetarian, as an example, one egg's about six grams of protein. Okay. Um, Greek yogurt provides about 18 grams per three quarters of a cup. So there's some other vegetarian but non-vegan sources. Um, and then we also have to look at our vegetables. Uh, our vegetables, such as like an entire head of broccoli, is going to give us roughly like 15 grams of protein. Um, and not that you know Andrew would sit down and eat an entire head of broccoli, but the point being that you're going to get you're going to have to be more mindful of the protein coming in through your vegetables. And then nuts and seeds are another good source. Keep in mind that nuts are 50% fat and then about 25% protein. So while they're not huge sources of protein, they do impact that total um, over time. Sure. And then as you said, nuts are a good source of the fat that you may be or that are you are likely missing now. Exactly. So it's just about, you know, sitting down and, and writing out, okay, this is what I ate today. How does that look? And where, where my room for improvement? Uh, some people find it helpful to include a protein powder uh, to help meet the needs. Uh -huh. You, you know, that's one way to do it. Some animal uh, omnivores, <laughs> um, you know, consume protein powder anyway. So that's one way to get things in. 
if he is considering vegan, then we want to look at, you know, the entire um, hitting all your eight essential amino acids. You don't need to do this at every meal. The body has a good store of these, but it's something to be mindful of that food combining uh, or food complementary protein complementarity um, over the course of a day or a couple days becomes more important. So making sure you're, you're hitting those essential amino acids um, on a regular basis. Got it. And what about iron? I think that's the last one that you mentioned. Oh, iron. Yes. Um, so there's lots of vegetable sources, dried apricots come to mind. Um, your food sources of um, your dark green leafies come to mind. Uh, with any of your dark green leafies, just make sure you're adding a source of vitamin C or like acidic quality to it. So salad with tomatoes or mm-hmm. salad with lemon juice to help the absorption of that non-heme iron um, into the gut. So iron is one of those those nutrients that's a bit harder to absorb, but with a little help from from vitamin C, you can um, absorb it quite well. Excellent. Okay. Well, I think that's a really comprehensive answer. So the kind of the key takeaways for that is do it gradually and uh, stay on top of those four key nutrients. And there might be a little bit of pen and paperwork involved to uh, to at least make sure you get all your all your protein. Yeah. And if you've got the opportunity to get some blood work done before and then maybe six months into the change, that's always good too, just for some baseline testing to find out how it's impacting you. Mm -hmm. Because you might find that by changing your diet, you're actually able to absorb more of other things. And, you know, because most of your food now is going to be slightly more nutrient dense if you're sticking with whole food uh, nutrition, of course. And uh, you might find you need to actually eat a little bit less uh, to meet your your overall needs. Interesting. That's a very good point. So no, no, just like white Wonder Bread and pasta binges. Try to try to keep it as whole foods as possible um, with any diet, whether you're omnivore or vegetarian or some level of of plant based. Right. We we want to eat as as um, whole foods based as possible. I feel like I can't say clean eating anymore because that comes with negative connotations as well and. And nobody knows what the hell that means. You're like, well, yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you put that out there because it's it's just a buzzword that's been completely sucked dry of any meaning that it may have held at any point in time. Like, likely did not. It's just less of a tongue twister than whole food, plant based, yeah, uh, plant focused, of course. Um, yeah, but it also doesn't mean anything. So you can you can use it to mean whatever you want. It doesn't. Eat fresh fruits and vegetables, emphasize the vegetables. I think what, um, eat mostly plants, least minimally processed most of the time. I think that was what Michael Pollan um, is a good tagline. I like it. Okay, well, that covers our uh, our list for today. As always, Tara, thank you so much for spending your quarantined morning with us. <laughs> You're welcome. My pleasure. And uh, where can people learn more about you and about your company, Heal? Uh, people can reach me on the internet. Uh, you'll post my website, I'm sure. And, you know, I'd love to promote some events, but right now we've all our events huh. have been suspended. Yeah. But we're still open for business for phone consultations. And um, But Tara doesn't want to see you in person. She just wants to talk to you or, or FaceTime you. At least for the next 14 days. <laughs> or until yes, we know at more. Least yeah. the next 14 days. <laughs> Everyone, uh, thank you very much for listening. Stay safe during this uncertain time. Listen to the public health experts. They are experts for a reason. 
They're telling you to stay at home and avoid other people other than those of your immediate family. They're doing it for a reason, not just to be jerks. Let's uh, help flatten that curve and uh, and get rid of this virus with as little collateral damage as, as possible. That's my PSA for the <laughs> for the day. Sounds good. Okay, we'll sign off there. Awesome, thank you. No problem. 